0: Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. From everyone's welcome here, we're so glad that you decided to be with us here at New Story Church this morning. We are in a critical, important series right now called Wrecking Room, and we're talking about something called deconstruction, specifically Christian deconstruction, and what it means for us to go through a process of deconstructing faith or deconstructing the Christian culture that we were raised with. In fact, the message that I gave last week, I've never received that much feedback from a message before. I was getting emails, text messages. We got a lot of people uh, checking it out, and it's been really cool to see uh, what the response we've been getting from that message, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this week as well. This is week two, and just In case you're like, "Hey, I missed last week," I would recommend checking out last week's message because it's a conversation that's going on over a number of weeks. And uh, so, if you feel like maybe a little bit lost, I'm going to try to catch you up today. But check out last week's message. Just don't do it right now. Do it later because I'm talking right now. Uh, But but when you have a chance, check it out. And we're talking about specifically deconstruction within the Christian community. And some of you are saying, "Okay." well, what is deconstruction? What does that even mean? Well, last week I gave three definitions for deconstruction. I'm just going to give you one this week because we got to get moving in the conversation. And this is the one that I I kind of made up myself. So deconstruction, specifically in the Christian community, it's a process of dissecting and investigating the Christian culture you were raised with. This process becomes necessary when your real life experience is not lining up with the faith that was given to you. So it's a process process. It's not something that happens overnight. Something could happen over months or years. And what you're doing is you're dissecting and investigating and pulling apart the Christian culture, the faith that was given to you and saying, hey, what exactly do I believe? Or or, what exactly is truth? Or what does that mean? And, And discovering that and going through that process. And a lot of times this process becomes necessary when what you were raised with is not necessarily lining up with your life experience. And so that second statement is really what we're going to be examining today. We're talking about why have people deconstructed? Why are people going down a direction of, hey, I need to dissect this and look at this, and what exactly about someone's real life experience may not be lining up with the faith that was given to them? And I also want to give you, I gave you this last week, here's my goal for this series. I was wondering it's going to be three or four weeks. This series is going to be four weeks, but here's my goal for this series. My goal is to initiate a conversation amongst differing views and generations that could lead to understanding and healing. That's the goal. To initiate a conversation amongst differing views and generations that could lead to understanding and healing. Because generally speaking... Once again, this is generally speaking. It's not true across the board, but generally speaking, those who find themselves in a grouping of deconstructing their faith or deconstructing the Christian culture they were given or raised with are in a millennial or Gen Z age group. And typically speaking, those who are in the church that are not deconstructing, that don't really like this whole thing, that are confused about it, they are baby boomers or Gen Xers. This is generally speaking. There can be some crossover. But what has happened is there's become such a divide over a conversation like this one that people won't even talk to one another. I know people who are deconstructing who feel like they can't talk to their closest friends and family about the process they're going through. And so my goal is to create an environment where people can begin to have conversations that could lead to healing, that could lead to unity, that could lead to, oh, hey, we may be better understand one another and where each other is coming from. And so for those of you who are wondering as well, hey, I you know, what, what are you doing sitting? Because I don't normally sit. If you weren't here last week, I said week one and two, I'm going to be sitting because I want to make sure that I say things clearly and calmly. Normally, I talk really fast. I'm moving around. I'll be back to doing that next week. So if that's what you want me to do, I can do that next week. We'll be back to that. But th- I'm sitting now because I want to make sure that I articulate myself uh, uh, more clearly and better and I can slow down a little bit. And so we're, we're going to get there. We're good. But this is just, you know sitting this week because we want to handle things well. So we're talking about why are people deconstructing? Why have people went on this direction? Why have people went to this path and starting to break down the Christian culture they were raised with? Well, the, the simple answer is that there are some things that people were raised with. They were told, hey, this is how things are. But then when their real life experience came into play, there, there are a lot of ways in which maybe what they were given or maybe what the church taught them, it felt as if the church fell short for them. And so what we're going to have to do today is we're going to have to discuss some things that might make us a little uncomfortable. We're going to discuss some things that might be a little bit difficult for us to hear. And one of the things I've heard people say before is this. I've heard this from multiple people. Hey, we should not discuss areas where the church has has not done well. We should not discuss areas where the church has failed. We should not discuss these things publicly. Because when we discuss these things publicly, it just hurts the church. I wholeheartedly just disagree with that statement. In fact, I think that we should have these conversations publicly. I feel that we should discuss these things. What actually hurts the church is when we choose not to be honest, when we try to sweep things under the rug, because what that does actually is it puts on a veil of arrogance and not a veil of humility. And what we're doing is that we're saying, hey, you know what, I'm just going to try to hide things instead of being honest. This was not the approach of the early church to just hide things. Notice when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they didn't say, hey, you know, we shouldn't include that whole part in there about Peter denying Jesus three times because it makes us look really bad. I mean, it just makes us look horrible. You know, we should not include that whole portion about how we abandoned Jesus when he was crucified because it makes us look so stinking bad. The early church didn't say that. The early church didn't say, oh, let's let's hide the things that make us look bad because honesty was more important than a fake appearance to them. Look at this in Galatians chapter 2. There's a situation where Paul had to publicly call out Peter, of all people. Look at this. He says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, feeling the... Uh, fearing the party of the circumcision, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So Peter, bold Peter, who was standing up and declaring and getting the church started in Acts chapter two, finds himself in a situation where he's compromising, finds himself in a situation where he's hanging out with people who are saying, oh, you gotta be circumcised to have faith. And Paul's like, no, we ain't having any of that. And so not only does he confront Peter publicly, he then writes it down, lets the church at Galatia know about it. And now everybody else knows about it 2,000 years later. There are times when we have to have public conversations about things that have happened in the church that are just not good. We have to be willing to be honest. We have to be willing to be open because this is how iron sharpens iron. This is how we get better. We don't get better by acting like these things just don't exist or they never happened. We have to be willing to have these conversations. So you'll see today too, some of the reasons that we're going to go into of why people deconstructed, some of them are a little bit sillier than others. Some of them are deeply painful and serious. Two of the reasons, two of the major reasons that I've read about or heard of why people go on a deconstruction journey, I'm not going to talk about today because I'm working on a series for both of them. And those reasons would be the scriptures and the doctrine of the afterlife. I'm working on a series for both of those. If I were to tackle those two things today, we would be here until the Bills game tonight or even afterwards. You would never get out of here because there's a lot with both of those topics. But I wanted to acknowledge for those who are deconstructing, we hear you, we know that those are some tensions and we are going to be working on discussing those things as well. But just the, the entirety of those topics, of talking about all the scriptures, talking about, talking about the afterlife, that would just take quite some time. So we're not gonna jump into that today. Even some of them today, I was like, man, do I have time? To take that on today. And you'll hear with some of the topics, I'm a little bit more passionate about them than others. I'll say more than others, but it's good for us to get these things out there so that we can have these discussions. Because I know this too. I know this from talking to some parents. I've talked to some parents before of like, hey, because I was in youth ministry for a while, um, or I was in college ministry working with kids. I was like, hey, yeah, you know, you, you know your son or your daughter, they're, they're dealing with this because, you know, they were taught this. And the parents are like, what? They were taught what? They were taught what in church? And sometimes there's even a disconnect between parents and their kids of the parents didn't even really know. Oh, that's what that was being communicated to my kid. Oh, well, we need to have a conversation about that because that's not good. That's not good. So I'm, we're trying to get as much as we can out there. I'm not going to cover every reason why people have went on the deconstruction journey. I'm not, I don't have time to do that. Some of these things are just the first domino to fall. Some of these things overlap for people in one another, and they and they have, you know, a lot of different reasons. But we're going to try to cover some things today. We're going to try to get some things out there so that we can be better, so that we can say, hey, we're not just going to try to hide things so that we can have a facade of perfection. No, we're going to be honest and open and have a healthy conversation. And maybe, hopefully, I would really hope that this would lead to some healthy dialogue for friends and family beyond these walls on a Sunday morning. So here's the first one. This is, this is a silly one. Weird behavior. But weird behavior is where it starts for a lot of people. They start noticing that there's just some weird things that happen in church sometimes. Is anybody with me on this? There are just some weird things that happen sometimes and people just act like, oh, that's normal. That's okay. We're not gonna say anything about that. We're gonna keep letting that crazy dude over there be the crazy dude over there. No, there might be some things that we need to talk about because that is just weird behavior and it doesn't represent Jesus very well. Let me give you an example of this. We at New Story Church here, we're all for the Holy Spirit. We're all about the Holy Spirit. If you were at our worship night Friday night, we had a great move of the Holy Spirit. We're all about passion and worship. That's who we are. It's great. But some people with the Holy Spirit, sometimes they get a little bit weird. Things get get a little bit weird. I told this story last year, but thankfully our church has grown, so I'm gonna tell it again. When I was about nine years old, I was in a Sunday school class and the Sunday school teacher gathered us together and told us that we were going to receive the Holy Spirit. And said, to receive the Holy Spirit, we all needed to start mooing like cows. That was her plan. That's just a little bit weird. Mooing like cows, a bunch of nine-year-old kids, that sounds a little bit more like brainwashing. It's just uncomfortable. we were all moo. And she said, you can chick chick like a chick. I don't even know what chick chick means, but that's what she told us to do. There's sometimes just some weird behavior that happens in church. Uh, I was reading a book called Religious Refugees, and the author told this story of how he was at a revival meeting, and the speaker was talking about the the dangers of cigarettes. And he said, If they're smoking now, they'll be smoking later. Implying that if they're smoking cigarettes now, they'll be smoking in the afterlife later on. Not only is that statement weird, the story gets even weirder because apparently, when the speaker made that statement, that's so great. What is wrong with what? That's not exciting. That's not exciting. It, 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 uh, we could go on and on about weird stories, but this is my last one. I'm not trying to hate on any Christian bands. I'm not trying to hate on anybody. But can all of us 90s and early 2000s Christian kids admit that it's just, it was just a little bit weird? It was just a little bit weird that we used to, with smiles on our faces, at, whether it was a conference or a rally or just in the comfort of your own car with a CD, we used to smiles on our faces, shout and sing about how they don't serve breakfast in hell. Like, well, they don't serve breakfast in hell. That's not exciting, that's that's kind of morbid and dark, and we're, oh, they don't serve breakfast. And no, no, that's uh, why. Why is that something to rejoice about? It's just kind of weird. And I, we have to be honest that there's been times we've allowed weird behavior. That this is not. This is not good. This is not acceptable. We need to have a discussion about this because people think, is this what this is all about? Weird behavior. <laughs> we can move on from that one though. Uh, this one kind of builds on weird behavior. Bad information, bad information. Time and time again, we've allowed people with authority or people who are communicators to to just fire off bad information, and we know it's bad information, but we just let them keep doing it. Oh, because they have a title. Oh, because no, there there should be some accountability here. I have no, I can not even no idea how many times I endured an end times prediction. And not just, oh, these are the signs of the times, but here's a date, or it's going to happen in this year, or it's going to happen in this time period. Even though Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour, there are some people who really think they know the year. I, they really, I, I, was, I was told that it had to happen by 2018 because of a certain prophecy regarding Israel. And I had a friend who slowed up the progress of his life, who said, oh, I'm not going to get married anytime soon. The end is coming because he believed what somebody else said about the end of what was going to happen by 2018. And you're, oh, it's on your friend. No, it's on us for saying, oh yeah, let's just let people say whatever they want. And then when people believe that and then just are, are acting on it, that's not healthy. You can't just let bad information go out. James 3, one says that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's not just in regards to morals. That's in regards to, to teaching soundly and teaching responsibly and just spew out whatever we want. And there should be accountability for that. I remember I was taught at a young age that, or a spiritual leader, that I needed to be ready when I go to school. I had to be ready. I had to be ready because they were going to teach me in school that in 1492, Columbus discovered that the earth was round. And that's wrong because Isaiah knew that the earth was round because Isaiah wrote, I sit up, you know, God sits upon the circle of the earth. And you know, Isaiah does write that. It's great. It's beautiful. It's a really cool thing that Isaiah wrote that. But they did not teach me in school. That Columbus discovered that the earth was round in 1492. I learned about Aristotle and Greek philosophy and theories of the earth being round. About from people who existed way before Columbus. Now I know there are people like Kyrie Irving who still don't believe those things, but I I I was I was not taught that Columbus, I was taught about other things, but I was just given bad information of here's what they're gonna teach you in school. And then along with bad information, I was given a bad approach. Here's what you need to do. You need to be ready for your biology teacher because your biology teacher is going to teach you some things that are just not, are just not of God. And so I remember I had this sheet. I was like, I'm ready to do what the Christian does. You know, I, I have the sheet. I, have, I had a sheet that had three questions that no evolutionist had the answer to. Can a rock give birth? I was going to go to my biology teacher and I had the edge. I had the information. I was ready to go. And then I got to my 10th grade biology class and guess what? My biology teacher was a Christ follower. I was all ready to you know i 'm going to take this guy out, and I, you know, I got this argument and I got and I was I was ready he was a, he believed you know he had similar beliefs to me, and guess what I learned? I learned about this thing called a curriculum that teachers have to teach, you know, and that they 're not just up there spewing their opinion all the time that hey you know they went into this field because they wanted to help kids and they wanted to help students, and that they don 't need to be an enemy, and i don 't need to go in with a chip on my shoulder looking for an argument because that 's not the way of Jesus either and What's, what's so funny about this, is this, this would be like, if you went to Buffalo Wild Wings, for those of you, if you're not watching in Buffalo, I'm sorry, you've probably just never had real wings before, but this would be like, if I went to Buffalo Wild Wings, and I said to the, my waiter, you know, these are okay, but I mean, have you been to Duff's before? I mean, Duff's, that's the original. I mean, Duff's, that's that's real wings. I mean, do you realize what you're serving to me right now? This is, I mean, this is this is not, not anywhere near as good as that. My waiter would look at me and say, excuse dude, I work here. I, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm just serving what we have. I just work here. Like, What is your deal? It's like going to the teacher. I'm going to look for an argument. I'm just teaching the curriculum that I was asked to teach Just do what I'm supposed to do. Maybe we'd be better off being Christ-like in our character as opposed to going around looking for arguments. It's bad information with a bad approach. And within this bad information and bad approach, somehow we've adopted this concept and idea that faith should be anti-intellectual, that faith should be anti-critical thinking. We've adopted an idea that faith should be anti-college anti and anti-learning. And I've heard people, people have said this to me before. Oh, so-and-so started reading and they lost faith. What? What? Don't get me wrong. What's so beautiful about the way of Jesus is that it appeals to all people. Jesus appeals to all people from all places. Peter, John, Mary, people, like they were ordinary, everyday people. I'm just, I'm just an ordinary, everyday person. Many of us in here are. But for those who feel as if they lean more on the intellectual end, or they want to learn, and they want to, lead, and they want to think critically, and they want to grow, faith is not anti-that. In fact, at one point in time, those who followed Jesus were known for starting universities, and hospitals, and innovating, and creating. How do we become the movement that has been identified as anti-learning and anti-college and anti-university when we, could, we, we were once the front lines of that? There's a brilliance that we can have as those who follow Christ. I love this statement from the late Dallas Willard about Jesus. Look at this. He says, and can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he was not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, How could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? If Jesus really was who he says he was, he wasn't only king and Lord, but he was also brilliant. Willard goes on to say that Jesus would have had the best information on human life available because he's fully God and fully man. So if Jesus led the way in brilliance, if Jesus led the way in asking questions, if Jesus led the way in thinking and creating and innovating, why have we become anti that? We should be at the forefront of critical conversations, asking questions, growing, learning, thinking. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We've been given the mind of Christ, the mind of the one who existed before creation. The, the mind of the one who in him all things hold together. So we should not be anti questions, anti thinking, anti all education. We should be engaging with that. We should be learning together, and we shouldn't have to be. Oh, it's this or that. No, if you are, if you feel like you lean more intellectual, if you feel like you want to read, if you feel like you want to learn, the faith community of faith. We should be embracing that and moving forward as innovators and creators. All right, so there we go. Weird behavior, bad information. Next one. I'm not going to spend as much time on this one, but it, it needs to be noted. Tragedy. Tragedy. Tragedy will strike in a person's life the loss of a loved one, a health diagnosis, a separation in the family that you didn't think would occur. And tragedy can mark a person's life in such a way that they begin to question and wonder the found, and, and begin to explore the foundation that was given to them. And the complex one about tragedy. A lot of times it's, it's about a, an experience you went through. All of the other things that we're talking about today, they're things that we as the church can look at and say, how can we improve with that? How, what have we done that we can do better with? But with tragedy, it's one of those things where I think one, one of the ways that we can improve as the church is learning to walk alongside of people who face tragedy. Not just saying, oh, here's a verse and move on with our lives. Some people need a verse. Some people need prayer. That, that, that's completely appropriate. But sometimes what we need to do is just be better with walking people through it, walking people with, walking with others through those difficult conversations, walking with them. And instead of trying to force feed them, Jesus, allowing them to find and discover Jesus in that place. Because there's no place that Jesus is unwilling to go to. There's no space that Jesus is afraid to step into. And it just as Jesus went to the, the funeral of Lazarus in John 11 and said, I am the resurrection and the life for many who are facing tragedy, what, they, what has to happen is for them to discover that for themselves and for us to walk alongside of that with them and not just say, take this and move on. There's an empathy that comes with following Jesus and being in the way of Jesus. As we've talked about tragedy on other occasions, I would, Dr. Dave gave a great message here called When the Brook Dries Up. We had one called When the Journey Chooses You. This is a conversation that we frequently have at New Story Church, um, but it's one of those things I just wanted to acknowledge that as we move forward, that we don't always think, oh, here's how you deal with this every time. Jesus always treated people on an individual basis. And what does it mean for us to say, I'm gonna walk with you through this and I'm going to allow you to find Jesus in this because we, we can find Christ together in this and I'm just gonna for it and then move on. We have to walk with people, walk with people, walk with people. Oh, they got a problem, they can't move on. No, we're gonna walk with people. This tragedy is real and it hurts. All right, move on from tragedy now. We're going to one called identity. This is a big one. Identity is a big one. And I, also too, I, I should have said this at the beginning, but I just want to clarify here, because I know some people, if this is your first time here, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's criticizing a lot of stuff in the church. As I said earlier, this is how we get better. This is how iron sharpens iron. And I do want to acknowledge and recognize that we as New Story Church, we know that we stand on the shoulders of churches and people and leaders who came before us but we also recognize that there are some things that we need to reflect on and fix sometimes. And just as we're having this conversation right now, I hope that in 30 years from now, as we're passing on the baton to another generation, that they look at what we did and said, hey, we're really thankful for this, but here's some things that you guys could have done better and we're gonna try to do better. Because that's what true humility is. We're gonna learn together. We're gonna, we're gonna appreciate the good, but we're gonna say, hey, here's where we can make some improvements. And identity is one of those areas where we have to continually consider how we can make improvements. And identity involves so many different layers and I, I can't spend too much time on it, but, but identity involves layers like marriage and sexuality and vocation and personality and so many different layers and complexities. And identity was one of those things where I feel as if what we did is we did Jesus plus this. You need Jesus and this. Jesus plus Jesus. And don't get me wrong. I understand that there's a sanctification process that comes with knowing Christ where he begins to, to change us and shape us. But oftentimes when we were told, hey, become who God wants you to be, it ended up sounding more like conformity to certain behaviors than it was to becoming who God had designed us to truly be. Embracing and discovering the unique personalities and wirings and giftings that God has given us. You know, I I have a close friend who was raised in church and felt that what was communicated to her was that if you're not married by a certain time at a certain age, then you might be out of God's will. You might not be doing what God wants you to do. Some people are like, oh, she could have just misheard somebody. No, that was what was communicated within the church. And that, that's not healthy. That's not good. When Paul was writing to the church at Galatia, his goal was not for them to, you know, that you would get married or do this. His goal for them was this in Galatians 4.19, that Christ would be formed in you. That's the ultimate goal. That Christ would be formed in us. And guess what? When Christ begins to be formed in us and we begin to be shaped in his image, other things will begin to fall into place. I even remember, personality-wise, I always loved humor and making people laugh and being funny, and I, and I felt like, oh, I can kind of be funny in some Christian circles, but when I'm with people who aren't Christians, I just have to be serious all the time, because that could hurt my witness if I, if I joke and I make the wrong joke. No, Then I realized that the, the humor God gave me was not a hindrance, it was actually a gift that he had given me to connect to others. And sometimes the unique thing that God has given you that you felt someone else tried to oppress, he actually gave to you as a gift to connect with others. And so I would say that we should start the search for identity in Matthew chapter 22. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus says that these two things are the most important things. He says this, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You should love the Lord. God. He said, this is what's most important. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what's most important. And so, because when we get closer to loving God, our view gets to be expanded of how we can better love others, because we begin to see others as God sees them, and God truly loves all people, And when we love God and love others, within the giftings and the abilities that God has given us, we begin to grow into and become the people that God has designed us to be. And in fact, we can know that our identity is being corrupted, that maybe we are living beneath our intention when love of self starts to overcome love for God and love for others. That's when we can know that our identity is falling short of who we've been designed to be. When love of self starts to become the priority over love for God and love for others. But when we love God and love others, guess what? When that's our priority above all else, when the spirit of God is driving us into that above all else, we will begin to become who God has asked us to be. And all of those other things will begin to fall into place. And he'll begin to speak to us about who we should become and and things we can change and and how we've become fully who he's called us to be. Love of self is what will corrupt the love of God and love of others. But when we love God and love others above all else, we will begin to become the people that God has called us and designed us to be. Next one. This is a big one. This is a heavy hitter. Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. This is one of the top reasons that I've seen people feel as if they can no longer be a part of a church or attend a church. I'm going to say this very clearly. People should not feel as if because they're affiliated with a certain political party that they are not welcome in church. And unfortunately, that has happened, and it's horrible. Jesus is the priority. Jesus is the priority. And I know far too many people who have a greater vision for the United States of America than they do for the kingdom of God. I know far too many people that I can read all on their social media about what they think about the United States and where we're going and what we should be doing, but they have very little to say about the Great Commission of going to make disciples of all nations. Far too many people get this mixed up. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in political discourse. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in critical conversations in our society. I was at a Compass Care meeting a couple weeks ago. There's things that we can be involved with. There are things that we can discuss, but we need to make sure that we're being Christ-like in those things. And we need to ensure that our love and our vision for for whatever it is that we're in, for this country, the state, or whatever, does not exceed the vision that God has given us for his kingdom. And that people shouldn't feel as if, oh, if I don't agree with you politically, then I can't be a part of what Jesus has. But far too many people feel that way. I cannot say this more clearly. Jesus Christ did not come to rescue America. Jesus Christ came to rescue humanity. And humans exist in all countries, in all places, and his church exists in all countries, in all places. And Jesus Christ did not come to save and rescue America. He came to rescue humanity. And I know that, oh, you know, there's Judeo-Christian values in the starting of this country, and I get that. If you want to have that argument, that's great. But when people start to say things like, oh, this is a Christian nation, I'm sorry, that's bad theology, Israel was a Christian nation. They were a theocracy. But now in the way of Jesus, the way in which we are a light to the world and a hope to the nations is not through a certain nation, but it's through his church. And his church exists in all places, amongst all people, all over the place. And God doesn't look at one nation and act as if he likes it more than others. That's not how things work. In in the way of Jesus, here's what we recognize. We are not... Americans who happen to be Christians. We are Christians who happen to be Americans. That is our primary identification. That's who we should be above all else. And as we move forward, the mission of Christ as the church, that should be primary. To walk in love, to walk in humility, to walk in honesty and openness and truth, to, to be the people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness and faithfulness. To be the people who love our neighbor even when they don't see things the way that we do. And we can't allow other things to be prioritized over that or to get mixed up into all of that. The mission is to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that is in all places, not just one select place or wherever I feel most comfortable. The mission is to build his kingdom. I love when uh, Jesus was kind of asked a political question. Some religious leaders came to him and said, hey, should, you, what should we do with taxes to Caesar? This is in Mark 12. And Jesus took the Roman coin that had the image of Caesar on it Caesar, pretty crazy leader, by the way. And Jesus said, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. You know what Jesus is saying? Give to Caesar that which bears his image, his coin, because that's temporary. That's fleeting. But give to God that which bears his image, your very self. And be a part of the eternal work that God has called us to do. Because that is far greater than any vision and any mission that we could ever come up with on our own. Work for the eternal above all else instead of the temporary. Next one. This is a really heavy one. Abuse. Abuse. They keep getting a oh, little heavier and heavier. But Now, within abuse, there's kind of leading up to that would be general like church hurt. And it's a term a lot of people use. We're not going to talk as much about church hurt today. That would involve gossip and division and dissension and things like that. But we, we are going to spend some time here on abuse because this is an important one. And we can't get this one wrong. And one of the points that I think would help to animate this point even and to, and to bring this out a little bit was a situation about 10 years ago in 2011 Uh, a very famous pastor, I'm not going to use his name because if I did, some of you would already be like, oh, I'm not going to listen to this point. But a very famous pastor in 2011, I was a junior in high school, released a promotional video for a book that he was writing. He was walking in an alleyway. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about and you're saying, I can't believe this was 10 years ago. And he's in this alleyway and he's asking all these different questions about the afterlife. And in this, in this video where he's asking questions about the afterlife, he's promoting a new book that he, he's, he's writing. And as he's, as he's promoting this video, as he's promoting this book, he really only asks questions. He doesn't make any statements about what he believes. He's just trying to get people interested in the book that he's coming out with. And before the book was even released, before anybody had a chance to read it, just based off of the video itself, pastors started tweeting about this pastor. One of them tweeted goodbye to him. Before we even had a chance to hear what he had to say, oh, you're done, you're out. Now, the book was released and he advocated for a form of universalism, which I myself, I'm like, I'm not really into that. But, But once the book came out, and even before that, with the book, there was outrage in the Christian community. How could he write this? How could he say this? This is wrong. we got to do this. We've got we to respond. we got to do this. And I've noticed this time and time again, that whenever a pastor or a leader goes a little bit left-wing with their theology, we are quick to say something. we got to say something. we got to get on the front lines. we got to speak out against this. But when a situation of abuse occurs, silence. Silence we're making progress, we're getting better, but far too often, silence. And even going back to the information one, why do we get so worked up when somebody introduces a concept that we might disagree with? If what we have is so strong, if what we have is really the truth, if what we have is so unbelievable, which I believe it is, then why is in the words of Joker in the Dark Knight, does everybody lose their minds? (laughs) You know, everyone's just losing, everyone's going crazy. Why? If what we have is so solid, why are we, and we'll go crazy over that? They challenged our beliefs. They said something we don't like. We don't like it. We got to say something. But when a case of abuse comes up, we're people that are loved by God, we're people who are innocent and defenseless and vulnerable. We're abused either spiritually or, or an authoritarian abuse or sexually. We just say things like, oh, well, why did they wait so long to come forward? I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe coming forward with, with a story of abuse is not the most enjoyable and easy thing to do in the world. Maybe that's why. Or, 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 or you, know, you know, he could never do anything like that. I've never seen him do anything like that. Yes, because that person is going to wait for you to witness the abuse for them to do it. Or, um, oh, you know, I mean, maybe he did it, but some things are taken out of context. Or, or this one, this is one that a lot of people say, um, maybe, maybe he did it, but he needs to be restored so that we can get him back to his position. So whether it's on a small level or a large level, a lot of times we act as if this person is not doing what they're doing, that somehow the kingdom of God won't move forward. Guess what? The kingdom of God will be just fine. The church will move on just fine. But let's say that there was a scenario where some people came forward, the person admitted that they did it, and yes, the church should walk alongside that person for a restoration process, especially if they admit that they did it. But restoration does not mean restoration to a title or a position. You can have restoration without that happening. Too often we think that restoration means restoration to a title and a position. No, that doesn't have to happen. I mean, it could, but it doesn't have to. That's not, restoration is a completely different process. we are all these different, oh, you know, could it have happened, you know? And it seems as if even for those who then say things like, well, you know, he probably did it, but we need to be very careful with this, as if the concern is more so for the abuser and for the church or the institution than it is for the victims. People seem to be more concerned about, well, we gotta protect this. We got to protect this organization, we got to protect this institution. No, we need to step up and protect those who were vulnerable and hurt and were given a wrong view of who God was because somebody decided to use their authority and their power in an extremely inappropriate way. Uh, Rachel Denhollander was the first girl to publicly come out against uh, U.S. Gymnastics, Dr. Larry Nasser, if you want to even call him a doctor. And, um, and she publicly came forward, and she's a powerful testimony. And she's, she's now a lawyer. She's a Christ follower. And she had this to say about abuse within the church. She said, we see a lot of people deconstructing their faith because the God that they have been taught is not a righteous God, is not a loving or a trustworthy or a safe God. It's not the God of the Bible. So it should make sense to us that we have so many in this generation deconstructing their faith. They have been given a false gospel and given a false God. I've heard people say, well, they were abused, but that had nothing to do with Jesus. Well, they were given a false gospel and a false God. It's a traumatic experience. Process. Who even knows? Just... They were given a false God and a false gospel because somebody decided to do something. is was absolutely horrible. Jesus took this seriously as well. Jesus said, for those of you who cause a little one to stumble, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and be thrown into an ocean. And when that word for stumble, it doesn't mean, oh, you know, if you go and drink a beer, and you make someone else drink beer, you made them stumble. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about there. This is the Greek word "scandalizo." It's where we get the word scandal from. This is is the meaning of the word stumble. To cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. To cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. Those who use their role and their title and their influence to abuse are causing people to mistrust the one who we should be able to fully trust, Jesus Christ. Jesus takes this seriously. Look at the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage in his message translation. On the other hand, if you give one of these simple childlike believers a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't you'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a millstone around your neck. Jesus took this seriously. So church, it's time we start taking this seriously. No more excuses. No more, oh, this will come on that. No, we speak up for the vulnerable. We speak up for the hurting. We speak for the broken. We stand for those and we stand with those whose voice has been taken from them so that they can have a voice. We stand with them. In church, we say this is no longer acceptable and we are going to work together as a church to make sure these things no longer happen because these people are dearly loved by God and we will not allow evilness and wickedness and and just downright sin and destruction to reign in the church anymore. We will stand for those who have been hurt. Last one. Many of us were raised in a context where it felt as if We got to get older, and and it just seemed like God didn't have much of a vision. seemed as if the the God that we knew wanted us to make a decision, read our Bibles occasionally, don't drink or chew or run with girls that do, you know, that whole thing. Because for some reason, it was always the girls who were in sin, not guys. I don't understand that either, but that's another thing we could talk about. It was always, you know, guys, it's all, you know, the girls, it's their fault, guys. It's their fault. Uh, No, guys, you're responsible too. Don't don't fall for that garbage. But anyway, so... But anyways, you know, don't don't just you know make the decision. Read your Bible, and then one day, one day you're gonna to get to heaven, and it'll be all good. It was as if Jesus came, and the only reason he came was so that we could get to heaven one day. And don't get me wrong; there's this beautiful hope of eternal life. But what if eternal life was not just about quantity of life, but it's also about the quality of life that we can experience now? What if the the quantity is a, is an add-on? It's a bonus. What if it's about a quality of life that we can experience now? To know Him in this age and to be fully known by Him. Jesus says this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may die one day and go to heaven. No, it doesn't say that. He says, This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life begins now new life begins now there is an intention and a purpose and a design and a meaning that God has for you now that's why Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Jesus isn't telling us to pray for the end times and pray that the kingdom will come one day he's asking us to be in a conversation with God that we would bring about God's kingdom work his eternal work on earth as it is in heaven that we can experience eternal life now, that we can experience new creation now, that we can live in and write a new story now. This is at the ethos and the heart of New Story Church, that there is a new story and new life available to you that yes, it will exist in the age to come, but it's a quality of life that you can experience now where you can walk with him and experience something brand new. And there's a meaning and a purpose and a design and an intention for you now. God doesn't have you make a prayer so that you can get to some place, just get to the place one day, he has you get to know him now because he has something for you now. I never already quoted Dallas Word, but to quote him again, we did a really good job of making Christians, but not a great job of always making disciples. And a disciple is a student of the way of Jesus. What would it look like if we fully embraced to be students of the way of Jesus, to become more and more like him and to know that we can have eternal life now, that we can have new life now and experience him and know him now and become who he has designed and called us and created us to be. If you would, please bow your heads and join me for prayer in this moment.